Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Greg Wells, and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high-performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion-person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living, And my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success. And that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me again. And this week, we've got a really great interview with Mark Black. And this one's just all about overcoming health challenges and crafting an incredible life where you have impact. Um, But the main thing that I want you to take away from today's show is just the the psychology that's required uh, and insights into how to keep your mindset strong despite some significant challenges. Mark is an incredible human being. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into the story. I don't want to ruin it for you, uh, hearing it from me before you hear it from Mark, but uh, he's just done some unbelievable things despite some challenges that were completely outside of his own control. Uh, He overcame some obstacles, uh, health obstacles specifically to accomplish some incredible things. So if you want to gain a little bit of inspiration and, and also learn some very specific insights into how you can, uh, overcome obstacles, then I think this is going to be something that you're going to be absolutely fascinated by. So please enjoy my conversation with Mark Black. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the very beginning. Let's talk about the first year of your life, which you probably don't remember, but you've probably been told all about it. And that's where the challenges and like, that's where it all all begins. So let's go back to the beginning. Sure. So uh, the parents who are listening can probably relate to this. Um, My parents were uh, 10 months married when I was born, or at least that's the story they're sticking to, uh, cause the math works really nicely. And, uh, and they were 24 years old and they're expecting their first child. And those of us who are parents can remember what that was like. And then, uh, you know, this was 1978. So technology being what it was then, uh, everything looked good and they had no reason to believe that, that things would not be, uh, you know, as expected. And then the unexpected happened. 
So I was born within minutes, uh, skin started to turn blue. Doctors grabbed me from my mother and, and rushed me away and run a bunch of tests and uh, come back and tell these, these young parents that their son has uh, a heart defect. Um, the aortic valve is not working properly and they're going to have to do emergency surgery and it can't be done in this hospital. So the, the plan is uh, medevac me to the children's hospital three hours away and perform open heart surgery. I like mom and dad have told me the story obviously many times and I just, I appreciated it at one level when I was a kid. And now that I'm a parent, it's like, I can't even wrap my head around what it must've felt like to not only watch your newborn child be sick, but also watch them be taken away because, you know, they couldn't, mom had just given birth. They couldn't leave with me. So they were, you know, completely helpless and at the mercy of, of what the doctors decided to do. Oh my God. Um, and you know, you're right as a, as a child, it's one thing, but as a parent, I can visualize that. And, you know, Ingrid, my daughter had like some five minutes of difficulty breathing and that was rough. Uh, I can't imagine what your mom and dad, you know, went through. And, uh, so right away you're in open heart surgery, obviously you survived that and, uh, take us through what happened, what happened next. Sure. So, uh, few months of recovery, doctors say, look, be prepared. He's going to need more surgery. And so a year later, uh, they did a widening of the aorta. So the main artery in the heart. And then uh, I was stable, but they said, look, just be prepared. Uh, there'll probably be many surgeries ahead. Uh, you know, do the best you can to kind of uh, keep him keep him safe and as healthy as you can and be prepared for more. And um, and they said, you know, be prepared to totally change your expectations for what his reality will be like. He probably will not graduate school on time because he'll be uh, missing a lot of school time because of health issues. And, uh, he'll be on vacation, and you know, there's a there's there's a long road ahead essentially. And I was just very fortunate that uh, I remained relatively healthy for uh, a decade and a half. Really, I mean, most no major. Uh, major heart issues. There were certainly little bumps along the way, but nothing really significant until I was about 13 or 14 and my heart went into atrial fibrillation. So for those uh, not familiar with the term, basically the upper two chambers of the heart no longer uh, beat. They just kind of quiver. So they're not really doing their job. And that leads to fatigue and, and uh, eventually a whole lot of other uh, complications along the way. So that resulted in kind of a, a reduced level of activity. I was a, like I played competitive sports and did all the things that I wasn't supposed to be able to do. And so a lot of that had to be kind of cut back, um, which was, which was tough. I was a, I was a competitive kid. My, my parents are both phys ed teachers. So um, we were in sports as soon as we could walk. And so that um, lifestyle change was, was big for me because I had defined myself as an athlete and, all of a sudden I couldn't do that anymore and had to kind of redefine what I was about and what I wanted to do with my time. And as a 14 year old kid, that's, that's hard. Yeah, no kidding. And so, um, I, I can identify with that as well. I was an athlete growing up and certainly that's how I identified and couldn't really, uh, 
think of being anything else other than an athlete as a teenager. So, uh, and I had a, a, ch- a challenge, but was able to get back into sports. Um, so this is leading you very early on into resilience. Like you're faced with obstacles. You have to adapt and continue to move forwards. Many people faced with those circumstances would go in one trajectory. You went in a very different trajectory. Um, how, what sort of, what was your thinking process at, at 14? This is just amazing to even have this conversation, but like, what was going through your mind? How did you pivot? Um, and who did you end up becoming at that, um, at that time? Uh, It's just amazing to even think about it, but I'm curious as to, you know, what that transition looked like for you. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say that it was, um, very quick and smooth and, and super intentional, but it wasn't, it was messy and, um, stumbling and I resisted. <laughs> um, so I was, I got very angry, um, you know, because life wasn't fair. And, and so I had that whole grieving frustrated period. Um, but I, I, again, I, I, I'll, you know, this will be a theme throughout the interview. I, my parents are, are incredible people. And I think we all, all of us who had good parents are, are, um, love them, but, uh, I don't know that I could have been born to two more perfect people for the kind of life I was going to have to live because they had the ability to give me as much leash, so to speak, as I possibly could have without endangering my well-being. Uh, so they didn't bubble wrap me. They didn't um, protect me overly, which I, which I think is the natural instinct. It certainly wouldn't be mine for, with a with a kid who's got a frail sort of health situation. And so because of that, um, I had, you know, I obviously as a competitive athlete, you learn to fail, you learn to lose, you learn to, um, to get back up, you learn to try hard, you learn to put in effort, all those things. So I had this grieving period and then I went, okay, what do we do? Right. Like I'm, I've always kind of been in the mode of like, how do we fix this? Right. Like every solution mm. has a problem and, yep. and every problem has a solution. So, uh, I discovered theater as it happened. I knew that I had to, I knew that I needed something I needed an outlet of some kind. I could not be a, a student who like went to school, came home, did homework and, and did nothing. Um, and so I tried theater. I'd done some public speaking when I was a kid. So I, I wasn't really staged. I didn't have stage fright to deal with. And just thought, well, let's see if this, if this works. And I, like most things in my life, I am the personality where it's, yeah, I don't do 50%. It's zero or a hundred. So I was, like just completely engrossed in the theater in high school for the next three years and did every play and every musical and everything that I could get my hands on. Um, and it was great. And, and in retrospect, prepared me very well for the career that I was going to have, uh, as it happens. And then, and I carried that through university. Um, and then, uh, I, my career path was going to be education. I was going to go and be a teacher like mom and dad. And midway through my second degree, so I got my bachelor's in in arts and then went to get a bachelor's in education and began to notice symptoms that things were declining. So something wasn't right, which I guess is the the best way to put it. I was getting shorter breath more easily, um, getting fatigued more easily, was needing to take naps in the middle of the day. So, you know, things, something was up, but at the same time, I was a 23-year-old stubborn male and so you know while logic would say go get checked out something's not right i went ah if i ignore this it'll probably go away um just not i have no idea what you're talking about i've never done that before (laughs) ever 
which is not a good health strategy for anybody listening. No. Uh, yeah, let's not do that. Don't, don't, don't do what I did. Yeah. So I came home at the end of that semester and my mom had not seen me in about two or three months. And she took one look at me and was like, get in the car, we're going to the doctor's office. Um, I had lost like 30 pounds, which I'm a, I'm like 120 pounds at a healthy weight. So 30 pounds is a significant amount of weight. And, um, and it turns out I was, I was now in, uh, right and left sided heart failure, which the symptoms being the fluid accumulates in your lungs and accumulates in your abdomen. And so because it accumulates in your abdomen, it pushes against your stomach, makes your stomach, um, smaller and therefore you feel full when you're not really you haven't eaten very much so i was just like my caloric intake had gone down significantly over time and i hadn't noticed and uh, yeah so doctors you know put me in the hospital got fluid off did what they could to kind of stabilize me and then said um you need a new heart and, and new lungs and you need them like yesterday and that's that began the the toughest part of the health journey <laughs> Yeah, I can only imagine because I had, I used to, I did my postdoc at the hospital for sick children in Toronto and that worked largely in cystic fibrosis and the kids who have CF, many, many of them end up getting uh, lung transplants. And so I had the opportunity to see some kids before and after they got transplanted and one, uh, the the whole concept of a, a heart and lung transplant boggles my mind. And when you see people go through it, First of all, I can't believe the body can handle that. Secondly, what they, how they are afterwards when it's successful is so amazingly incredible. Um, but it, the whole thing just blows my mind. The fact that we can you know, cut people open, remove the heart and lungs, put new heart and, and lungs in from a donor, close people back up, and hours later they are um, totally different physiologically is just absolutely mind-boggling. So lead us through um, what happened with your heart-lung transplant. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's, it is a miraculous thing to uh, to be a part of, but it's a miraculous thing to see. We, I, I watched uh, a surgery on video prior to mine just to kind of, I'm one of those people that needs to know all the details. But, no way, really? Um, you watched it before it happened? Yeah, oh my yeah. God, that's brave. Well, I think, I think there's kind of two p- kinds of people in the world, right? There's the ones who are like, tell me as little as I need to know as possible. And others who are like, I need to know everything. Wow. And so I was like, I need to, I want to see what happens. I want to like, um, so the one I, I watched a double lung, I didn't get to see a heart lung, but I've seen, a, I saw a heart as well. Um, so let's just be clear. You saw them like sawing through the sternum, opening up yeah, the ribcage. Yeah, on video, like... like not live, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. No, I wanted to see the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and so to watch like, to watch lungs inflate is just like, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, the process is is intense. Like, the, first of all, I didn't think I was even going to be listed because the doctor's here uh, in Atlanta, Canada, who referred me to Toronto said, you're too sick. Like, I don't think they're going to even put you on the list. Um, it's this weird, I call it the, the, the Goldilocks syndrome of transplant where you have to be like, because the availability of organs is so small and the list of people who need them is so big, they don't put you on the list until you really, really need it because there are people who are sicker who need it more. But at the same time, if you're too sick, then you're not going to survive the trauma of the surgery because, as you said, it is a rough thing to go through. So you have to kind of be right in that magic middle. 
And at the time that that the doctor said, you need this transplant and you need it now, I, they thought I was too sick. So they sent the, the, the file to a couple of, of hospitals with our urging or insistence. And Toronto took a chance, really. I mean, I talked to the head of the transplant team a few years ago at a conference. And he said, I remember, I remember when we reviewed your case, I'm, you know, we reviewed several that day, but he said, you were, you were a coin flip. Um, you were 50-50 on whether or not we should put you on the list. So that's how close I was to not even getting on the list. Um, yeah. And then they required at that time for you to live within a two-hour radius of the hospital. Now, they've extended that now because they can keep the lungs alive longer. So we had to move to Toronto to be listed. Uh, so my dad and I left my mom and three brothers and moved to Toronto. And I waited for almost a year. Uh, the last six months, I was in hospital because my condition was so unstable. And then uh, September the 6th, 2002 at 10.15 at night, I remember it for the rest of my life, uh, the nurse came in and said, there's a call for you. And the person on the phone said, we think we've got a set of heart and lungs for you. And uh, I, was in, I was in surgery about seven hours later and in surgery for about six or seven hours. And then in the ICU for five days of which I remember very little because the morphine was really good and they kept me heavily sedated for a long time. Yeah, no kidding. Um, But then, yeah, the first moments of like being totally uh, aware and alert, um, it's it's another world. I mean, for me, the biggest difference is I, I, I was able to breathe fairly well prior to transplant as long as I wasn't exerting. So that would be a difference with CF patients who kind of struggle to breathe all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I had lungs in addition to heart was related to the pulmonary artery pressure between the heart and the lungs. They said, if we just replace the heart, um, it's not, it's not going to work. The new heart won't be able to handle the pressure of, of the artery. So we need to do both. So it wasn't so much a breathing thing for me. It was, it was the, strong rhythmic steady heartbeat that i had never felt in my life um like it echoed in my ear so much that i could i had hard time sleeping for the first week or two because it just felt so foreign and then it doesn't just stop there so you have a new heart and lungs you're you have a second chance at life and for a lot of people that would that would be enough but you ended up starting to actually go back to who you were as a 12, 13, 14 year old and to try to train again. Can you lead us through the thought process of actually feeling your heart beating in your chest rhythmically and making the decision to actually start seeing how far you could go with this new, with your new heart and lungs and and your new opportunity at life? Yeah, I, Again, I'm a hundred percent or zero kind of a person. Not not that that's a good or bad thing. It's just how I'm. Yeah, it's just apparently. how I'm wired. And I I did mandatory. They have a mandatory rehab program in the hospital that you do for the first three months. You're in there three days a week, and you know you lift weights to gain back some muscle mass because you have none. Um, you walk on the treadmill to try and gain some endurance. And I I can still remember walking into the gym the first day and picking up this pink one pound dumbbell to lift weights, which is, um you know, humbling as a 24 year old guy. Uh, and, but I knew, so the, the rehab program lasted three months. It, it went well. Um, and on the, on the last day I knew like, if I don't have something to work towards, I'm, 
probably going to slack off on this and I shouldn't. And so I, I really don't know where it came from. I did, it was one of those kind of like, I wonder if kind of things. And um, a marathon was like this symbol more than anything else. It was kind of like, well, if I could run a marathon, then I can pretty much do anything I put my mind to, right? So let's let's see if I can do that. Um, so obviously at that point, I was I was able to, I jogged on the treadmill for two minutes or something like that the last day of rehab, basically just to show people that I could because they told me I wouldn't be able to. Um, I have that kind of stubborn mentality too. Yeah, funny yeah. how that works. Right? <laughs> You're like, you can't, yeah, you can't do it. Your, your knees will hurt and your, your rib cage will be sore from the surgery. You just, people can't run after. Uh, all right, perfect. Tell me I can't. That's a good way to motivate me. Um, Why do you think that happens? That happens so often that people have limitations imposed upon them. And over and over and over, I've heard that over, since doing this podcast, especially I've been interviewing people, almost all of whom have been told by someone at some point that, yeah, no, you can't do that. And they almost immediately afterwards make the decision to actually go down that road and do that thing. And I, I just, it, I'm still frustrated by when I hear that. I'm starting, sorry, I am starting to get really frustrated by the fact that this is such a consistent pattern that gets imposed upon people. Anyway, I, yeah, just a agree, no, rant. I agree with you hundred percent. I think there's a lot of factors there. Um, I mean, you would have a lot more in-depth research and knowledge than I would. My, my gut is because I see teachers do it. I see parents do it. Um, I catch myself doing it to my kids occasionally. And then I catch it though, at least, um, you know, I think part of it comes from whatever's going on with that person's psychology and, and, um, you know, sometimes we impose our own limiting beliefs on other people because it makes us feel better if they don't surpass us or something. Um, and I think part of it is protective. You know, we're trying to prevent people from experiencing disappointment and rejection and failure. And so, you know, play things safe because then you won't have to deal with these things. I don't know. I mean, from a medical perspective, I think part of it is is they think they're it's the medically responsible thing to do, right? To just kind of set your expectations. Which, Which it probably, it probably is, is. In fairness, yes. right? Um, yeah. No, I was to be clear. I never like, I was never told don't run, and I was never told um, don't do endurance sports. Like I, I didn't, I don't. I think it's irresponsible, especially after the investment of um, uh, of manpower, money, testing resources that went into keeping me alive, I, I feel it would have been really disrespectful to just be like, screw all of you, I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, so no one ever said that, but they did certainly set what they believed to be realistic expectations for me so that I didn't get disappointed, I think, ultimately, right? And so it was like, you know, if everything goes well, I remember this, we had this meeting before I was listed for transplant. They said, if everything goes really well, we find the right donor, you do well in surgery, we get the right cocktail of meds, you can expect to maybe go back to work part-time someday. So that was kind of like the, that was right. the baseline expectation. Right. Um, yeah. And I get it, but I also felt like I didn't go through hell to go back to work part-time someday. Like that's just, it's not worth it. So um, yeah. So it was marathon. So, and, and, and again, it was a, it was baby steps, right? It was like, okay, one minute on the treadmill, that's a little victory. And then let's go run a 5k. And when I say run, I mean, very slowly jog um, a 5k and then let's do a 10 and let's do a half and so my 26th birthday i celebrated by doing my first half marathon 
Um, and then a year or so after that, did the first the first marathon. The first marathon. So you didn't just do one. You you kept on going and did a, like yeah. I've been, <laughs> you I've kept been on four. going. Um, <laughs> I did, the plan was to do five before I was thirty, and then we had our second child after the fourth one. And uh, I was going out to do a long run one day and my wife was standing there with our like three-year-old in her arms and the, or the baby in her arms and the three-year-old on the floor. And I went, yeah, that's something about this doesn't seem right. Like, see you later. I'm going to go run for four hours, yeah. honey. So, um, so I realized that, you know, I'd proven my point to myself and it was probably time to chill for a little bit. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the other marathons may come yeah, someday, call. but, uh, not for a while. Um, talk to me about what you think resilience means, because clearly you've demonstrated it throughout your throughout your life. Basically, from birth, you've been resilient. You've, in some cases, been forced to be resilient. But there's different ways of responding to challenges, and yours seems to have been a fairly consistently. Uh, you've demonstrated a consistent ability to go on an upwards trajectory after challenge. What is what do you think? enabled you to do that? What in hindsight do you think allowed you to be successful in recovering from some of these challenges? And like, how do you think of resilience now having clearly demonstrated some pretty incredible resilience overcoming all of the obstacles that you've overcome? Yeah. So I think it's, um, I mean, I have a, a, a five step sort of process now that I've reverse engineered after going through kind of how do we do this? Cause I get, this is the question that I get, right? It's like, how do you, I mean, the, the short answer to how do you get through this is you just do it right. It's one foot in front of the other and you figure it out as you go and it's messy and it's, um, and it's not always perfect. And man, there's lots of mistakes along the way. Um, and certainly there's a variety of factors from, um, mindset is huge, uh, external network of support in my case my family was incredible but if you don't have that then you know the friends or mentors or coaches or people around you i think that's that's massive um but the the way i kind of look at it now is i say okay there's a there's this five-step process so it's acceptance right so first we have to kind of acknowledge where we are and accept it for what it is. And, and that means not living in denial, which, which is where a lot of us get stuck and, and not, um, living in, in anger for too long. I mean, I think we all have that moment of like, I don't like this, but we have to move out of that quickly and go to, okay, it is what it is now. What do I do? And then once we do that, then we can start to, to aim at what it is that we want. So can you envision a better future tomorrow than you have today? Um, and that's a big one because a lot of people just get stuck in acceptance. They're like, okay, it is what it is. Woe is me. Life is, life sucks and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, other people realize uh, I have tools at my disposal. I'm going to use those to make my life better in whatever way I can. And so that's when we get to aim at what we want. And then we start to adapt. We start to like figure out, okay, what, what needs to change? What's working and what isn't working? Um, you know, so back when I'm 14, it's okay. Like sports was going to be my thing. I guess it's not my thing anymore. That sucks. Okay. Except that what do I want instead? Well, I still want to have this like active involved social, like I want to be involved in the world and I want to have a social life of some kind. What's that going to look like? Okay. Well, maybe I can try this theater thing. Let's see how that works. Um, and, and, and then we take action 
right? And and sometimes the action works and sometimes it doesn't. So we, we have to adjust that. And then and, and the final step is, and it's a circular thing. So it, it doesn't end. It's not like at this linear progression, but then we assess like, is this working, right? Um, you know, again, a lot of us kind of pick a path and we get this vision, like we're just going to go down this straight linear line and everything's, I'm going to tick all the boxes and it's going to work exactly the way I plan. And that's not how life works. So you have to kind of stop every once in a while and go, is this working? Um, Am I getting the result that I want or am I just doing this because it's what I'm used to doing and I'm comfortable? And um, and so if, if it is great and if it isn't working, then let's go back and adapt again and try something else and see if that works. And my whole life has just been a series of, of throw things at, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and and then try again. Yeah, I'm I resonate a lot with what you've just described and uh, the number of failures is just astronomical, which, uh, you know, leads to the random occasional, not random, I should say, at least the occasional success, which makes it all worthwhile in the end. You know, as I'm listening to you describe those five steps, I, the, the word that kept on popping into my brain was personal responsibility. And I was almost thinking of it like response dash ability. Like it, it appears like you're taking control. And although there's a grieving process, that's fine. You accept yourself and the situation, but then you take responsibility, response dash ability for going in a different direction uh, and taking control of the situation. Is that a fair, like that's what I was sort of popping into my brain as you were speaking. Is that a fair assessment? Like, is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. The greatest gift that my parents gave me and like again i i reiterate that this is all stuff and this is what i try and teach people when i speak is this is all stuff that i i learned either through upbringing or or books or studying or in other words like i think we have this misunderstanding of resilience that you're like some people are just born that way right like oh that person is just look at how tough they are like maybe maybe some people have a natural inclination but it's something that you can develop and learn and hone. And, um, and so if you don't feel like you are, then work on it. Um, and yeah, the greatest gift my parents gave me was, was exactly that. The understanding that you always get the choice to respond. You don't, you know, it's that old adage, you don't choose what happens to you, but you, you choose how you react to it. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, even one step further than that, you get to decide what the events in your life mean right? Like we, we have these events happen and then we infuse them with meaning, usually unconsciously. Uh, and the meaning you decide to assign to events is what dictates how you react to them. And so if you change what things mean, then you get to change how you react. And when you change how you react, then you change your results. How do you, so that's fascinating. How do we alter the meaning that we assign to events, especially when those events are sometimes negative or hurtful or damaging. Uh, and of course this would apply also to events that are fantastic and wonderful. Like, is there, what have you discovered around controlling your mindset about those events? So it's usually just about awareness to start with, right? You have to be aware that you're doing it. Um, and so, and so if you were listening to this, you're now aware, right? Um, so you don't get to say you're not anymore, but, and then you have to say to yourself, is this serving me, right? Like, does this interpretation of reality lead me closer or further from the person I want to become? 
So it's, it's, you're perfectly justified, which is, I think, what a lot of people will defend, right? Well, you're perfectly justified to say this isn't fair. You're right, right? Like at any point along my journey and yours and anybody else's, because we've all had stuff happen that's not fair, that's called life. Um, you're perfectly justified to say this isn't fair. I'm a victim. And, and you're right. And, and people will spend a lot of time and energy defending their right to be a victim. Uh, but is it serving you? <laughs> like, is it helpful to be able to blame something or someone for where you are today? Or is it more helpful to say, at least some of this is on me, and that's good news because it means I can change it. And so what part of it is on me, and, and how can I make that different, right? So take the example of, of my childhood issue with, with like this thing that the sports has defined in my life and it's my one outlet and it's taken away. Isn't that unfair? Yeah, sure. But I can either sit around for the rest of my life and talk about the good old days when I was, you know, I mean, we know those people, right? Who talk about they're 50 years old and they talk about when they were, you know, in 11th grade and won the basketball game. And that's like the highlight of their life. Or you can say, well, I, I don't like that interpretation of reality. I'm going to create a new reality. And so that period of my life is over or that that method of expressing myself is is over, but I have the ability to do this, 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 and this. Um, I, I've always remembered W. Mitchell, who's a speaker uh, I've seen a few times. The guy, um, I can't I can never remember which happened first. Oh, he was he was in a motorcycle accident and the gas tank breaks on the motorcycle, spills all over him and ignites. So he's burned like incredibly badly, barely survives, makes it through that and is also a pilot and then crashes his airplane and is paralyzed. So like you think either one of those is like, oh my God, I can't imagine surviving that. He has to do, go through both. And one of the things he always says is for every one thing I can no longer do, there are 10,000 things I still can, right? And whether that math is right or not is irrelevant, right? It's the attitude of like, yeah, there, we all have limitations. We all have things that we can't do. We all have things that are not fair. But do we focus on the few that we've lost or do we focus on the 10,000 we still have? And, you know, that's the, the gratitude mindset. And the it's, it's all about shifting perspective. Is there anything that shaped your perspective, shaped your learning? Like other than that story, which is incredible, by the way, are there key books that helped to helped you along this journey to understand what was going on and to help you continue to move forwards? Oh, wow. Yeah. Books. So many good ones. Or any influences um, I, at all. Like if there's, I'm just thinking about like if other people want to learn more about this and if, if they want to try to build this capacity for themselves, sure. like what are some resources that they might look to, 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 to go down this road? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, faith and family have been huge for me, but I can't give you those. Um, so let's see. Um, yeah, the, the actually, I just read um, Carol Dweck's mindset, which it which didn't necessarily form this, but certainly reinforced all of these things. So if you haven't read that yet, you should definitely read it. It's it's amazing. Um, oh, why am I blanking on the book? There's a fantastic book by Viktor Frankl called "Man's Search um, for Meaning." Thank you. Yep. Um, Life transforming. I read it a couple of times. Um, he, he wrote it. Uh, about his experience in in the concentration camps and he talks a lot in that book about this duality between accepting 
the parts of your circumstance for which you cannot control because there are some things that, you know, I think it's dangerous for us to have this mindset like we're the total masters of our destiny because there are legitimately some things you you can't do anything about. And if you if you are straining to try and control things that you can't control, you will you will drive yourself nuts. So you have to figure that out, but at the same time, take action on the things you can, because if you go too far that other direction, you become a victim. And so he talks about like learning how to control their mindset and their experience within this very confining, horrific environment. And the people who were able to do that were able to redefine life afterwards when they survived. Whereas other people who physically survived the experience really didn't survive because they they left and were still you know in the prison of their mind um it's a powerful powerful book what are your practices these days what are you working on how are you continuing to develop yourself and keep this resilience moving forwards now that you're speaking and writing blogs and you know trying to actually influence the world at scale are there any practices that you have that are making a difference for you that you might want to share with people Sure. So the three, three key ones for me, um, prayer, meditation, whatever you call that, like quietness, listening, um, is huge. And if you've never done it, like start baby steps, you can use, um, there's lots of good apps that you can use. Um, cause I was always somebody who was a do, 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 do all the kind, all the time. And I needed to learn how to sit and just be, um, exercise. I don't, it's the best drug on the planet. Um, and again, I, you know, people like you and I like to do that at extreme levels, but people can get intimidated by that. If you just go for a walk for 30 minutes a day, like just move. Yeah. I couldn't agree Um, more with that. Like doesn't have to be much, just a tiny little bit will make all the difference in the world. Um, and just, yeah, do anything, do do anything. So yeah, I agree. (laughs) And then, uh, read. So I, and I will confess that I, I'm an, an English lit major. And after I graduated, I was like, I never want to read another book in my life. Um, so I, but I, but I discovered audible, uh, which is, uh, audiobooks, and it's magic because I can do it while I'm exercising or, um, you know, running errands or whatever. And so I went from reading like maybe two books a year to reading like 15 or 20 books a year. And, you know, books are amazing because you get to learn, um, from obviously from other people, but you get to learn from other people's mistakes and you don't have to make them, which is, which is awesome. Super cool. Yeah. I mean, you get to have a conversation with an author. That's how I sort of see it. Like Mm. Victor Frankl, I actually, by reading his book, you can have a conversation with someone in your mind who survived the concentration camps in Germany in world war II. Like that's a pretty incredible opportunity. And that's another characteristic of high performers that I see very, very consistently is actually all of those three things, a meditation practice, uh, of some, of some, some sort, whether that's walking in the woods by yourself, whether that's prayer, whether that's scientific prayer, whether that's mindfulness meditation, whatever, they all have that sort of practice, a, a very consistent, hard exercise routine. I shouldn't say hard, a very consistent exercise routine, mm-hmm. um, and then nonstop constant education, which you can do now through podcasts, through, um, audio books through taking some time to read in the morning. So yeah, you're, you're, you're just, you're sharing a very consistent pattern of excellence that we've seen with a lot of other people. Uh, what's the future look like for you? What are you up to? Like, what's, what's the the next step? Like, wh- where are you, where are you going with all of this? So, um, my, my mission is to impact a million lives, to teach people that they're, that 
that they can do almost anything they put their mind to. I'm not, a, I, I don't believe that everything is possible. I just believe almost everything is possible. Um, and so I'm doing that through, through speaking, um, through my podcast and then through, um, a live event. So started a live event last year and, um, we're going to have another 150 people in September for, uh, for two days of, of incredible, um, speakers and, and networking with each other and, one of your good friends, uh, Dr. Jane Rouse, is coming to visit us, which I'm super excited about. And it's, yeah, it's awesome. And then obviously um, raising three healthy, functioning, responsible, response-able uh, children who don't expect the world to, to be delivered on a silver platter to them is, is also hugely important. That's awesome. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, markblack.ca is the easiest place. You can find all the social media links and everything is there. Perfect. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Such a massive inspiration, so much learning. Uh, I'm just like honored and privileged and grateful that you took the time to come hang out with us for a little bit today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be uh, on your show, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind blowing. I, I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play. That makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think. All of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.